Romans chapter number 13, we've been in our series Renewed, and you understand that we were going verse by verse through the book of Romans, and Renewed is the theme of the last section of Romans. So we saw earlier this year all about our salvation, that Jesus Christ did everything we need to bring us into a relationship with God. And we saw that our salvation is completely free, it is forever secure, because it's not up to us, is it? It's up to Him. It's by grace and Jesus alone. But now we're seeing this, that the gospel that saves us is a gospel that gives us a new kind of life. It renews us. It brings about a new creation. And so our theme verse has been Romans 12 and verse 2. And as I've shared with you, my goal is that you'll have this memorized just by quoting it together every week. So let's try it. It's on the screen. Romans 12 and verse 2 begin. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Renewed. As we come to chapter 13, we are looking at the theme this morning of renewed character. Renewed character. I read a book several years ago uh, by Peggy Newton, and the book was called when character was king and i'm a bit of a political junkie so i loved it because that book was written about one of my favorite guys ever president of the united states the year i was born and that is the gipper ronald reagan and the book was when character was king and obviously it was a very favorable reading of uh, mr reagan's life and i would expect that as she was uh she uh, worked very closely with him. But she dedicated the book not necessarily to his political achievements, but to his character. And as we look down through the annals of American history, you can find people on different sides of political issues, but you could find men and women of character. Do you agree, and I don't know if it's accurate or not, but we live in a time of cynicism, and I don't know if it's accurate or not, but we do live in a time where it feels as if character has been lost in our society. Have you experienced that? Now, I don't know if it's because stuff used to be done in secret and now it's all known. I, I, just, I don't know for sure. But as a general society, there was a time when the, the, uh, the old timers would say, there's no written contract. The contract was what? It was a handshake. It's a handshake contract. Trav, you write a lot of contracts. Ever settle any of them on a, con on a, on a handshake? Many. But your boss expects a little more than a handshake. Okay, absolutely. Yeah, there's going to be document and page after page after page. Well, there is a there there is and there has been in different times in human history a deficiency of character. Now, when we speak about character, I want to uh, it, that's what Romans 13 is all about. But I want to get this key point across right from the beginning, and that is this: being a person of character does not make you a Christian. We understand that, right? Most of us, I look around, most everyone here understands that, but that is a, a misconception that I can have a right relationship of God because I'm a person of character. It doesn't work that way. Because when we talk about character, it's really just a human comparison a lot of times. It's, it's me compared to Dennis, or Dennis to me, and who's got the, who, do we have character, or I have more character than that person out there, or whatever. We all fall short of the glory of God. So having good character never saved a soul. It never bought anyone eternal life. However, however, while being a person of character does not make you a 
a Christian. Being a Christian should make you a person of character. Being a Christian should make you a person of character. Not because when you become a Christian, you become um, better than anyone, but because you now have the renewed life and power of Jesus. That is why. So, one more thing by way of introduction, character versus reputation. How would you define the difference of someone's character versus their reputation? Character versus reputation. Well, Coach Wooden, John Wooden, described it best. He said, focus primarily on your character. Reputation is who people think you are. Your character is who you really are. Not inspired text, but Coach Wooden is the next closest thing we're going to get this morning to it. So he says, he says, focus on your character. Reputation is who people think you are. Hopefully you have a good reputation. But at the end of the day, it really, your character is what counts. Because how many of you know people have been falsely accused and slandered and it has hurt their reputation? Aren't you, aren't you thankful that there is a God who knows and sees all? And he knows our true character. Don't focus primarily on what other people think of you, but focus on the inner life that works itself out and makes you a person of character. So let's just see. There's a few themes in Romans chapter 13, and I chose character as I see as the overall theme because at first glance, this chapter seems a little bit disconnected, but I think you'll see the theme come together. In fact, some Bibles will have this heading. One, uh, one of the Bibles I have has a heading they put on Romans 13, and it was the duties of the Christian life. And it just describes some various ways that Christians ought to live. Let's begin, first of all, on the back side of your handout, you'll see in verses 1 through 7, I want you to see a duty to obey. Verses 8 through 10, a decision to love. And the final verse is a devoted life. So verses 1 through 7, let's see what it says. Let every soul, Romans 13, 1, let every soul be subject to the higher powers. Now that opens with a pretty demanding statement of us. For one thing, it's a universal statement. Why, why do I say it's a universal statement? Because what do you see first of all? I'm going to ask you to help me out this morning. What do you, how do I know it's a universal statement? Because who's it addressed to? Every soul. Well, what, what about, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. Now, I'll give you a little clue. If you're circling, if you're taking notes in your Bible, higher powers is a reference to authority, particularly government authority. And he's saying, the first thing he's saying to Christians is, hey, every single one of us, we have a duty to submit, a duty to subject ourselves, a duty to submit to the higher powers, to the government authorities in your life. You say, boy... I sure, I'd love to submit, but have you seen who's running the place around here? How many of you felt that way sometimes? Like, I, 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 I get what you're saying. Does anybody know who was running the place when the Lord inspired this scripture? Fella, you may have heard of, played a fiddle while Rome burned, and his name is Nero. He's a gentleman that uh, used to, uh, in addition to other distasteful practices, he persecuted Christians such to the point that uh, we are told that he would use them, he would execute them by burning their bodies and using them as torches for his garden at night. This was Nero. 
and there would be a succession of 10 major persecutions under the Roman Empire. This was the empire. It's not like, Paul wasn't like, be subject to the higher powers if they're Democrats, if they're Republicans, if they're... What if, what if it is a despotic Roman emperor? Be subject, he says. It's a Christian duty. It's a Christian duty. But there's more here, I think, and we're going to look at this a little bit, and, and unfortunately, we're going to... Th- not unfortunately, but there's time and place. Sometimes we'll dive into the governmental aspect. Today we'll move kind of quickly. But I do want you to see this. There is an authority principle in the Bible. And that authority principle extends beyond the government. You'll find positions of authority in all of God's institutions. Every institution that God has ordained has an authority structure. You say, what do you mean? What do you mean institutions? What are we talking about? I'm speaking uh, primarily of the first institution God ordained, which we've spoken a lot about today. That is the family. The family. There's authority, biblical authority in the family. Uh, The second institution would be the church. There's an authority structure in the church. And the third is the one that we're focused on right now, which is the human government. These institutions are ordained of God. And as Christians, we have learned to submit. And here's the great thing about submission. We are never more Christ-like than when we submit. Whether it's in the home, in the church, in our role in society. You say, what do you mean? Because did not the Son, though being equal with the Father, did not the Son submit to the will of the Father? In fact, within, and I think, Aaron, I'm stealing from you a little bit because you shared this on, on Thursday night, within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, we have a model of submission. Now, our Father, Son, and Spirit, are they, are they equal with each other? Absolutely. Not one greater than the other. But the Scriptures teach us the principle of submission that the Son submits to the Father, and the Father and Son send the Spirit. That principle needs to be bared out in every part of our lives, but it goes against our grain, doesn't it? Now, especially as Americans, because we were, we're a country that was founded by people that were like, we're going to create our own government, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Now, my political science nerd is coming out in me right now. So, if, if, so forgive me, and you can just ignore this part if you want. However, I do believe that the American Revolution was just revolution under the principles of Romans 13. And if you want to talk that out, if you're a fellow uh, history and political science nerd, we'll just geek out on that to our heart's content sometime. So anyhow, nonetheless, we as Americans have a bit of a rebellious streak in us, do we not? And and then New Englanders to boot. There's a double whammy up here. So we need to be careful that we we do, do not have a culturally formed Christianity, but we have a biblically informed Christianity. And Jesus says, one of the, Paul says, one of the workings of Christ in us is a heart of submission. There's a duty to obey. So now specifically, he gets a little bit more, uh, drills down a little bit closer into the governmental aspect. So pick it up in verse 2. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. That's pretty strong, isn't it? Now that word translated damnation can also be ruled judgment. 
So I don't believe the point is here is that you resist, you go straight to hell, do not pass go. I don't think that's the point here. It's the use of the word, hey, if you resist the power that God has set up, you're in judgment. If, if this is a fun translation note, most translations actually put this as in danger of judgment. I, I kind of have a feeling that King James being the sovereign, he kind of liked that word damnation if you resist, being in his version there. The, 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 the authority aspect. The point is this, when we resist God-given authority, we don't invite God's blessing into our life. We just don't. When we resist the authority that God has given us, we invite judgment. Well, how is that carried out? Well, look at what it says. Verse 3. Now, there's actually some obligations to government officials here, too. Look at how they're supposed to behave. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. Verse 3 is an exhortation to good government. doesn't always work out this way, but God's, God's principle, God's design for any authority figure is that that authority would not lead for their own benefit, but the authority would lead for the benefit of whom? Of the subject. The government is supposed to rule for the benefit. This is God's plan. If you do that which is good, thou shalt have praise of the same. Verse 4, for he is the minister of God. That's interesting, isn't it? We think of the, the, what I'm doing right now. What is, what is your occupation? I am a minister. Well, what is the occupation of every elected official or uh, official worldwide? Their occupation truly is minister of God. Every authority figure is placed there by God as his minister. Now, again, they can, what they do with that ministry is up to them. They can either fulfill it or they can abuse it. And in our country, we have the wonderful privilege of choosing our leaders. Isn't that great? This is who, this is the model that we should use. Look for people that serve for the good of the people. But God has given authority power. Verse number four, for he, the ruler, is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, like break the law, you should what? Be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. The, the power of life and death is delegated by God to the government. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. So he spends these verses saying, hey, you need to obey. And this is why, because God has ordained the government and because God has given the government power. Well, how much power? Ultimate power of life and death. But as Jesus would say, don't fear the ones who have power just to take your body. Fear the one who has power over your soul. And there have been many Christians who have, have submitted to the government. It's been illegal. There are Christians today. So you say, well, what about a Christian in North Korea? What about a Christian in Iran where it's illegal? What are they supposed to do? They are supposed to do what they are doing. They are very courageously submitting to the government up to the point where they are brought in contradiction to God's word. And then they appeal to a higher authority. But they still in the end submit because if they are caught, many have lost their lives. But we submit. We are called doesn't mean we can't work 
to change our government. It doesn't mean we can't work to, to, to bring about a more Christian government. But at the end of the day, our calling as Christian people is to follow Christ's example and to be people of submission. Why? He goes deeper onto the why, though. Look at verse number 5. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject. You must, Christian, not only for wrath. It's not just about saying, well, if I get caught, I'll go to jail. That's what he's saying here. If I get caught, I'll get in trouble. That's not the motivation of the Christian submission. The motivation of Christian submission is not wrath, but what? Conscience. Conscience. It says, this is right and honorable and brings glory to God. I obey, I submit. Again, let's play it out in all the scenarios. In the home, in the church, in society. I submit because it brings glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just for wrath, but for conscience sake is this duty to obey. And he says in verse 6, for this cause, pay tribute. That's that dirty three-letter acronym for us, I-R-S. Pay your taxes. Christian people have a duty to not be illegal. And, and, and uh, Now, find every legal loophole you can. Don't pay a penny more than you're supposed to. However, Christian people pay what they're due. It's a Christian principle. For this cause, pay tribute, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Verse 7. Now here, the overall authority principle, the overall principle here. Render, therefore, to all their dues. Do you owe someone tribute? Taxes? Pay. Is there custom due? Pay it. Fear to whom fear? Honor to whom honor. If God has placed someone in your life, both at the highest level or the most intimate level, if God has put someone in your life that he put in a position of authority, that person is due appropriate honor. They should be honored. That is one of the evidences of the outworking of the Holy Spirit in the renewed life of the Christian. It's an evidence of Christian character, a heart of submission, a heart of obedience. So I would challenge you to do this before we move on to this next point. If God is speaking to your heart right now, I, I, these, these kinds of passages are intended to make us pause and think, Am I, is this happening in my life? You may be thinking of an authority right now. In fact, you could be a student in here, and you're thinking about a school authority that, that you have not submitted to. Write it down. Pray about it. Mark it on your notes or put it in your Bible. Say, this applies to this situation. If it's in the family and children and their parents or a, a, a wife to her husband, is honor there? Maybe there's some that, that would practice illegal uh, taxation practices. Do what's right. Do what's right. That is Christ working through us. Verse number 8 now. He transitions. And he, it's, a, it's actually a beautiful transition because he just said to give to everyone their dues. What do people, what do you owe people? And then he says this, verse 8, 
owe no man anything. He says you shouldn't really, you shouldn't be beholden to anyone. Because if they're due honor, they're due respect, they're due obedience, then, then pay that to them, give that to them. But then come to think of it, really you shouldn't be indebted to anyone. Now there are, are biblical and just ways of lending and, and we have a, an economic system, we can talk about that separately. But this idea of have you paid your debts? Have you paid your debts? But then he says this, it's, it's almost as if the Holy Spirit, I, I, I just like the language here. Oh, oh, no man, anything. Well, actually, there is something you do, you should owe everyone. And it's not money. You shouldn't be in debt. You shouldn't have an honor debt that you haven't paid. You shouldn't have a money debt that you haven't paid. But you know what? There's a debt that you owe everyone that'll never be paid in full. It's the debt of what? It's the debt of love. I love how he transitions to that. He says you should love everyone. Everyone. Oh, no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Let's go ahead now to verse 9. For this. Now what he's about to do is explain. He's going to summarize the law. He's going to quote from what we know of as the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, actually there are quite a few other commandments. This is like a, and since there's a whole lot more commandments, he says, let me summarize it this way. It is briefly comprehended in this saying. Namely, let's say it together. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Who is he quoting here? Who is he quoting? He's quoting Jesus. There's a story in the Gospels where a young man comes to Jesus as a lawyer. And they're always trying to ask Jesus these tough questions. And they said, oh, teacher, tell us, which is the greatest of the commandments? Which is the most important one? And they're like, yeah, how's he going to answer this one? And Jesus says, well, actually, it's quite simple. The greatest of all commandments, and some of you know it, the greatest of all commandments is, first of all, to what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. But the second, Jesus said, is just like it. It's very close. First, you love God, and then, secondly, you love your neighbor as yourself. That's the calling of the Christian life, a decision to love. Well, then, just who is my neighbor? Just who is my neighbor? Like, is, is Mike my neighbor? I gotta love him. Is Donna my neighbor? I mean, who is my neighbor? And Jesus told them a story. He said, I want you to think of the most despised cultural person you could ever think of. In that case, it would have been these people from Samaria. They said the words and everybody, he said Samaritan and all the people were like, Ugh. Ugh. And you know the story, many of you know the story, or you've at least heard the saying of the good Samaritan. This idea that even the person that we think of as unlovable the most, and that's, it was a senseless, wicked, cultural and ethnic prejudice. But there are other ones that are a little bit harder. There are some people that do some 
pretty wrong things around us. But we're even called to love them. Even called to love them. What was it that Adrian said when he was here, Donna? You told me, you remembered that. That we love the people, I could put you on the spot, right? Because I, I just thought of it right now. Exactly. Adrian was here and he preached to love people that you ignore. There's a lot of people we ignore, aren't there? Just, but then there's people that he said, he said, love people that we ignore. And from that passage he said, and those that we deplore. We think are just, ugh, it's hard to love them. That's the calling of the Christian life. Because again, you're never more Christ-like than when you submit but you're also never more Christ-like when you can love someone who's unlovable. Because is not that the heart of the gospel? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How would you, de- how would you demonstrate the love of God? God commended his love this way in that we, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's a call, there's a decision we have to make to love. To love. The whole law is fulfilled in this. If you'll just love your neighbor as yourself. Verse number 10. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You see, Christian character isn't just about do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. And when we're young... When I was young, my parents did a great job of training me up, and I'm trying to do the same thing with my children. So part of, part of parenting is simply training. Don't do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. Yep, you can do that, but you better not do this. You, you know what I'm talking about, the do's and the don'ts, the do's and the don'ts. But at some point, we have to realize that Christian character goes beyond the external do's and don'ts and goes to the heart of the matter. It's not just here, this, this, this passage isn't just, okay, obey the government, pay your taxes, be a good citizen. It says, no, in the heart, view them as the minister of God. It goes beyond uh, just you, treat your neighbor this way, uh, you know, don't beat them up, don't steal from them, don't covet their stuff, don't take anything from them. It goes beyond that and says, well, how about you just love them? It goes to the heart. This is, this is why the theme of this series is, renewed because because we can live our lives by the external character markings without having the inward that inside out renewal and transformation that only christ can give us that's what we need there's a decision to love and then finally i told you i'd preach fast if you listen fast finally the last section here it all comes from a a devoted life a devoted life I love this. This passage of scripture, um, we'll have to have my dad preach on this sometime because this was one of his verses that God, I've heard him say this testimony about how God just got a hold of his life one day with this verse. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. Does that mean like we're, we're more saved than when we first believed? Is that the point? No, it means that any day, who's going to show up? Jesus. Any day now. It could be today. 
I don't know what day it's going to be, but I can tell you this much for sure. I can tell you this much for sure that we're one day closer than we were yesterday to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That some morning he is going to split the heavens and he is going to come and he's going to call his children to himself. And one day our salvation will be complete. Our salvation that we have right now is sufficient, but it's not finished yet. It's going to be finished when we have renewed bodies in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a day coming. See, see, Paul's now bringing us back to the ultimate motivation, our relationship with Christ. Christian character is built on the reality that Jesus is mine and I am his, and he is coming to welcome me home someday soon. The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. I'll never forget a, I, I can't remember the context, but there were some new believers. They hadn't been Christians a long time, and somebody was teaching about the return of Christ, and it was this aha moment for a new Christian. And they were like, wait a minute. You mean he's coming back? Like, we're not just going to him, but he's coming back? And the, the, the Bible teacher, I, can't, I, don't rem- I wish I remembered the setting, but they were like chuckled, and they're like, yes, he is coming back. Jesus is coming. Now I'm going to go. I'm going to go to what uh, uh, I, I'm going to go to a illustration that I heard many times as a child. It would do the church a lot better if we go to this this illustration a lot more often. But when Jesus comes back, I tell you, there's some things I wouldn't want to be holding in my hands at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I just assume Jesus return and doesn't find me surrounded by alcohol. I just assume, men, that Jesus comes back and he doesn't find us on a screen looking at pornography. I would much rather Jesus comes back and he doesn't find me at a party somewhere where Christian doesn't belong. Are you with me? You know what I'm saying? Let's bring it a little closer to home to those of us who, well, I don't do any of those things. I would just, I would rather Jesus doesn't come back when I'm having an argument with my wife or when I'm being unkind to my children or when I'm misrepresenting him at work. It's time. Now is, it's high time to awake out of sleep. We don't have the luxury of just this is this more biblical. This is just filled with biblical illusion. The, do you remember Jesus said, have your lamps trimmed and ready. Be awake. Be alert. When the, you, you don't know the hour when the Son of Man is coming back. Blessed are the ones he finds watching. There's some, I've got to realize that Jesus is returning, and now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. Verse number 12 This is a pivot moment in a life. Verse number 12, the night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. And if I get my dad's testimony right, I I believe that was the decision where he said, I am done. I am done serving alcohol. I am done living the life of a drunkard. And I will give my life to Christ. What a verse, what a moment, what a truth to claim that we have been called 
And, and, and again, notice the, notice the theme of the verse. It's not about just what we don't do. It's about the privilege of who we've become. Like, he's like, I'm going to just cast off those works of darkness. And I'm going to put on the armor of light. Oh, to be like an 11-year-old boy again and read those verses. Right? Cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. A soldier in the army of Jesus. I love what the, the, the Getty song, they speak about, O church, arise and put your armor on. And they say, and with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with strength and valor. Oh, it's a privilege. Some of these militaristic themes of the Christian life have been lost. We don't, we don't do them. We don't talk about them a lot anymore. They're not as, as politically correct. But Christians used to, we used to teach our kids. I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never fly or the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. Listen, that's something. All right, I'm just off on a tangent now, but that's okay. Are you all good with this? All right, so here we go. Here we go. Our young men don't need a soft version of Christianity. They need to be told to take the sword of the Spirit and the armor of, of God and just charge into this world for Jesus. There's some people that wrote some books, uh, Jesus and John Wayne, and they talk about how you know, the John Wayne culture hurt American Christianity. They may have a point or two, but I just think there's a few Christian men that could use to watch a John Wayne movie or two out there. Don't quote that one, but you know, that's, that's, I'm just saying, like the Bible is filled with manly themes and Christian character is, is something that we're not on retreat. We are in, I, I love it. I'm not against if you go on a retreat, but I've got a lot of pastor friends when they have a men's retreat, they don't call it a men's retreat. They call it a men's advance, right? I like that. I like that. There's something about that. And Trav, we don't call it either of those. We call it Man camp, right? That's what we do. All right, try to get, I'm going to try to get back on track and bring this thing home. So, put on the armor of light. Verse 13, some of those things I was talking about, you're like, oh, Ethan, I think you were kind of going beyond the text. You know, let's not do these things. No, look, look what it says. Let's walk honestly as in the day. Christians live, Christians live lives that the light of day can shine upon it at any time. Not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness. This literally is describing the party lifestyle. It was, the party lifestyle was the lifestyle of ancient Rome. That is how people lived. And there's some cleaned up English here, some, some old school English like chambering and wantonness. It's, it's speaking about sexual immorality, very clearly. And he says Christian character is about these, these things not being in our lives. Because Jesus is coming back. We're angels of light. Not angels, soldiers of light. Now my theology is questionable, so we're really getting in trouble. Not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantoning, want, wantonness, not in strife, argumentativeness, envy, having a materialistic motivation. But now, verse 14, he sum, sums it all up and brings it home. 
But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. There are, there are at least three other references in the epistles to putting on Christ. So what does it mean to put on Christ? It literally means put, it, put him on like clothing. I've also seen this translated, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's at least three other references to this in the Bible, in the New Testament. In each of those, it speaks to the fact that when we are saved, when we believe on Christ, that we are then clothed in Christ. It's a once-for-all thing that happens to us. Now, this is a bit of a, this is a principle, you'll find this in the New Testament, how we receive our salvation completely when we come to Christ, we're clothed in Christ, but it's almost as if, practically speaking, and I've heard it said this way, positionally, my standing before God, let's, let's use this jacket as the illustration of being clothed in Christ. Now, when I was saved, I was clothed completely in Christ. When I stand before God, he doesn't see me without the garment of Christ on me. My position before Christ is there. But as far as my life in this world goes, sometimes it's as if I get up in the morning and I'm like, you know what? I don't think I'm going to wear Christ to the workplace today. Now, nothing can change my position before God. We understand that, right? Before God, I'm clothed in the righteousness. But there's a practical element to our faith where we say, you know what? I think I'll just do this day on my own, and I'll leave, I'll leave that over there. And Paul reminds us of, well, first of all, your position in Christ, because you have, you have him, every single day, clothe yourself, not just in Christian behavior, not just in Christian do's and don'ts, but clothe yourself in the relationship that you have with Jesus. See, because when I go out, when I, when I go out into the world, it is not me that the world is supposed to see. It's Jesus. It's Christ. It's the inner transformation that works, it out, that works itself out in my Christian character. But it must stem from a daily walk with Jesus. You know, the days where I'm driving into work and I just say, Lord, I want to make sure that this day, help me to honor you in the workplace today. You know, a simple prayer like that, you know what's happening in that moment? What am I doing? Putting on Christ. Putting him on. But the times I don't, it's amazing. If I do that, what a difference the, the day at least starts out right? There'll be other decisions during the day. Do I wear the garment of Christ or do I walk in my own clothes? Christian character flows from a heart fully devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is something that only the power of Jesus can do. So I always finish the message with two applications. Most of you know this. I always have an application for people that are Christians. You'd say, Pastor Ethan, yeah, I am a Christian. There has been a time in my life where I received Jesus. Well, the decision for us to say is, Lord, am I allowing you to clothe me 
in every area of my life? Am I living out my inner walk with you? But I always want to make an application for those that, for some people, Christianity is just the do's and the don'ts. They think, well, if I, if I do the good things, not the bad things, best I can, then God will accept me. That's the wrong starting point. The starting point must be, I can never be good enough. I'm a lost sinner, and I need Jesus' salvation. You can try to improve your character all you want, but has there been an inner transformation where you repent of your sin and give your life to Christ? If that's never happened, whether you're in this room or you're watching the video today, if there's never been a time where you've received Christ, I want to invite you to do that today. So could we bow our heads and close our eyes? We're going to come to a moment of reflection, invitation. It's a time for us to respond. That last question I asked, has there been a time in your life where you have received Christ? If you're not sure, if you are not sure if you have ever received Jesus as your Savior, I want to invite you to make sure today, wherever you are, simply bow your head and talk to the Lord. If you're ready to call on the name of Christ, say, Dear Jesus, I do know that I'm a sinner, but I believe that you died for me. I believe that you rose from the dead, and I ask you to save me. I put my trust in you and not myself. Lord Jesus, please save me. If you've never prayed a prayer like that, if, you've never, if there's never been a time in your life where you've believed on Christ, I invite you to do that right now. Wherever you are, tell the Lord you know that you're a sinner. Call out to him and ask him to save you, believing in his death and his resurrection. Christian, how many of you would say this morning, as we prepare to sing and the instruments play, we're going to have a time of prayer. How many of you would say, I don't normally do this, but with a raised hand, you'd say, God spoke to me about an area of my life this morning. Who would say that? Slip up your hand, put it down. I see hands up. Amen. You say, God spoke to my heart today. Would you take this moment right now and would you confess that to God? Say, Lord, I need this area of my character changed. I need the Holy Spirit to transform this part of my life. Would you just take this quiet moment as the piano plays, talk to the Lord, surrender that area of your life to Him. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the message that we heard this morning. God, I pray that if someone in here doesn't know you as their Savior, that today would be the day that they would put their faith in you. God, for those of us who know you, we pray that we live our lives following you, Lord, submitting to you and your authority in our lives. Lord, you are our King forevermore, so God, I pray that we would submit to that. In Jesus' name, amen. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, or if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You can also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you in our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.